Luke 14, starting at verse 25 says, and then there went, and there went great multitudes with him and he turned and said unto them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sits not down first and counts the cost whether he has sufficient to finish it, lest haply, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king sits not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassage and desires condition of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Nowadays, many churches' approach to outreach is seeking a means to make their church more comfortable for anybody who wants to attend. Right? Is, your, is your seat cushion soft enough? Well, you're, I know yours aren't. Was the coffee strong enough? Was the music jazzy and modern enough? Was the sermon short enough? Was the message easy enough to take? But a review of the gospel of Jesus would tell us he has no interest in a consumeristic Christianity that sought to cater to the disciples' desires. He proclaimed a costly Christianity and appears to teach a basic lesson here that is truthful in many different situations of life. If something is obtained at a cheap cost, it probably doesn't hold a lot of value to you. But what costs you dearly will be held most precious. The salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ is completely free. But when you have faith in Jesus and become his disciple, you will find that being his disciple costs you everything. We'll only be willing to endure the cost of following him if we understand the value of following him. That's going to be clear as we look into the greater context and the two short parables that are contained in, in this text, that all of this is pointing to that cost of discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus is not meant to be comfortable, pain-free, easy life. We're going to look at this passage starting at verse 25, and it is delivered in just starkly plain language. Discipleship is difficult. And Jesus refuses to soft pedal that message so that people will like it. In fact, it seems very much like the great multitude following him in verse 25 is the reason why he turns around and says the things that he says through the rest of the chapter. As if to teach us, you know, following Jesus is not something 
that great masses and everyone is willing to do. And if the great multitude is doing it, you probably need to start reminding them about exactly what it's going to cost them. The lesson of the high cost of discipleship is so challenging and essential that it appears several times in the Gospels. Jesus repeatedly taught this truth. You'll, you'll find it in Matthew 10 and Matthew 16 and, and Mark chapter 8. This is actually not the, the first time you find it in Luke. Back in chapter 9 of Luke, verses 23 and 24, he said to them all, if any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever shall save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall save it. He repeatedly teaches this to his disciples. You can't read the Gospels and come away arguing that Jesus hid this in the fine print. He speaks freely about the demanding nature of being his disciple. And so there aren't any false pretenses. He's, he's very clear from the beginning what being a Christian will require. When you follow Jesus, you put your past relationships, your present circumstances, and your future plans all under his authority. He becomes supreme over everything. And you're encouraged to consider that cost before you ever even start following him. When you see following Jesus means relinquishing past relationships. Verses 25 and 26. And there went great multitudes with him and he turned and said unto them, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. For sure, this is severe Language, But this is also, we understand it as what's called hyperbole. It's language that is intentionally extreme in order to make a point. There's a lot of people who struggle sort of unnecessarily over what Luke's gospel is saying here. Of course, you are not commanded to hate your family. The fulfillment of the law of Jesus requires loving others. He even says to love your enemies. In the text, what we have is hyperbole, this obvious, exaggerated statement used for the shocking effect that it caused. It's used to emphasize the dramatic nature of what's being said. It's this kind of figure of speech in their, their culture. We see it other places, and it doesn't disturb us quite so much. So for example, in order to show that you can't have God and money both as the focus of your life. Jesus says a couple of chapters over in Luke 16, 13, no man can serve two masters for he will either hate the one and love the other, right? Now, is that literally true? If you had two bosses, do you have to hate one and love one? Can you kind of dislike them both? Can you kind of like them both? And this is, this is hyperbolic language, it's a figure of speech, which Jesus is just saying, look, naturally, you're going to prefer one over the other. If you had two bosses, you don't have to hate either one, but you would naturally prefer one. And that's what Jesus is saying here about these past relationships with family or, or friends. You have to love Jesus more. He's always your preference. There's a sort of parallel passage in Matthew, and here's how he says it in Matthew 10, verse 37. He that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying that you have to embrace some kind of bitter and, and hostile stance toward all your relatives. There's, there's too much clear teaching about his love, even to the point where we love our neighbors, we love our enemies. But it does here mean that you have to love Jesus more. There will likely be times when your parents or your siblings or your children have some expectation of you, but Jesus has another expectation of you, and you're going to have to decide. Do I love my father more or do I love Jesus more? Do I love my mother more or do I love Jesus more? When being obedient to parents or family or friends means being disobedient to Jesus and his word, what's your priority? But the cost of following Jesus here is more than just your relationships. It's also about yourself. Some people will love Jesus more than the world. Fewer people will love Jesus more than their family and friends. But the most difficult call is to love Jesus even more than you love yourself. You'll note in verse 26, that's part of the calling. It's not just that you prefer Jesus over father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. He says at the end of verse 26, yea, and his own life also. If you don't love Jesus more than you love yourself, you will surely find following him is too costly for you. And just in case you think that means that you have to love Jesus 51%, right? He's 51% important and I get to be 49% important. Think about what Paul said in Philippians 3.8. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord of whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. All of your relationships, yourself, everything that you valued in the past has to be relinquished in order to follow Jesus. Remember, in the context here, verse 25, he's being followed by this great multitude of people, this massive crowd. And it is often Christ's purpose when he's being followed by a large crowd to put them to the test so that they'll face the real cost of discipleship. In John 6, he, he did that after feeding 5,000 plus with a few loaves and fish, right? They followed him around the Sea of Galilee so they could get some more. And his response in John 6 was to preach one of the most difficult messages to accept. We call it the bread of life sermon. He starts saying, you know, you have to eat my body and drink my blood. And people could not get past the visual or even the thought of such a thing to get to the spiritual understanding. But that was his purpose. When he did that, there were no more crowds. It says many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then he turned to his closest disciples and asked, are you going to leave too? And so now he has this crowd with him in verse 25 and, and it says he, he turns around and he starts giving them a message, I think, that is designed to make some of them leave. He's gonna run off the pretenders. Unless Jesus is the most important thing, don't start following him. 
Don't claim you're following him. Whatever was important in your past relationships, they have to be subordinate. They have to be lower than Jesus. And to reinforce that teaching, he launches into two parables to show that following Jesus means reevaluating your present plans. Look at verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower sits not down first and counts the cost whether he has sufficient to finish it? Lest happily, after he has laid the foundation and he's not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This first of two parables here is about a tower. Now, a tower is an obvious, it, it's, a, it's a public project, right? We're not talking about, you know, hiding behind your enclosed backyard fence and digging a hole in the ground where nobody's going to see it. A tower sticks up visibly, and that's an important part of this. Jesus says, look, people are going to see it. It's a major undertaking. Now, what he's describing here is probably a a, a watchtower designed to be able to spot enemies far off or know if there's fires uh, that have started, or also it can be used as a kind of grain silo until the the crops are all dispersed, but a tower is something that, that sticks up and it's visible and everyone knows it, everyone sees it. Just like being a disciple of Jesus should be that way. It's something that the people around you will know. Jesus says it requires public confession of faith. People are gonna see it. And if you fail, that failure becomes a shame to you. The crowd mocks this failure in verse Verse 30, I love the way it says this man. That's actually in a kind of condemning voice in the original language, right? This guy, they're, they're mocking. This guy, look at this genius. It's contempt. The people are mocking. They say he's, he began to build a tower, but he can't finish it. It'd be childish not to count the cost. At home, there was one of my daughters in particular who loved to play with Legos. And sometimes the Legos would get left on the floor and I would find them, not on purpose, but I would find them. But whenever she would get a set, she starts putting it together and it it comes in a box and there's a picture, there's instructions and there's there's a number on the box that tells you how many Legos goes into it. And that thing gets made once, maybe. And after that, no kid I've ever seen starts counting Legos and building according to a plan. They just dump them out and start piecing them together into whatever frightened, mangled, franken creation they can come up with. That's the childish approach to building something. But adults can do the same thing. There's this place in Indiana. It's just north of Louisville, Kentucky. It's a little township called Marble Hill, Indiana. And there is an almost nuclear power plant there. Because there was a company named Duke Energy that in 1977 started building a nuclear power plant and after they had put two and a half billion, that's billion with a B, two and a half billion dollars into the project, they called it quits in 1984 saying they ran out of funding. And so they went in and they pulled out the fixtures that they could, auctioned those things off, made about nine million dollars back. And now there's a not quite nuclear power plant sitting there empty for 38 years. 
The company insisted it was a good idea because, you know, this region doesn't have a working nuclear power plant. And the people are still saying, well, we still don't have a working nuclear power plant. Unless you want to embarrass yourself, Jesus said you, you'd better count the cost before you start to make sure that you're going to be able to finish. The word for finish here is the Greek word teleo. It's the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he said it is finished. Here's a simple lesson. You'd, you'd better evaluate yourself to know whether or not your commitment to Christ is real because it's going to be put to the test and it's going to be put to the test publicly. If he's not the most important focus of your life, you're going to fail in some obvious and embarrassing way. And we've, we've seen that in people, right? Somebody makes a superficial commitment to Jesus and when the real cost is evident, their, their lives just turn into like a, a half-built tower because they started to follow, but they're not going to finish. The second parable Jesus uses is about going to war. Verse 31 and 32, or what king going to make war against another king sits not down first and consults whether he's able with 10,000 to meet them coming against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassage, a, a delegation and desires conditions of peace. One of the interesting difference between these two parables is the first one, the, the, the tower is voluntary and the second one is not, right? Building a tower is something that you choose to do. Being invaded is something that your enemy chooses for you. So even if you hear the first parable and you think, oh, an incomplete tower, so what? I can deal with that little bit of embarrassment. You're not gonna feel that way when the invading army comes. The enemy is going to come for you. And when the enemy comes for you, don't expect a fair fight, Right? The enemy who's coming is bringing twice as many people as this king has. A 20,000 man invading army and 10,000 defenders. And so the description, Jesus says, is a wise king is very likely to opt against putting his people in danger pointlessly. He's going to send a message to the invading king and say, well, whatever it is you're here for, let's, let's talk about it. What's peace worth to you? The simple lesson of these parables is that there's some things in your life right now that are worth serious contemplation. And being a follower of Jesus and the cost of it is at the top of that list. Being a disciple of Jesus is not just closing your eyes, bowing your head, raising your hand if you'd like to have a get out of hell free card. It's more than just a repeat after me prayer that becomes an, an oath that you were only half serious about for a minute or two. This is your whole life. Look at what you have in your life right now and determine if your love for Jesus is going to pass the test. If it's going to stand up over time because whatever it is that you have, you're going to have to be ready to let it go. And if you're not willing to pay that cost like the story of the incomplete tower or you're not ready to suffer loss because of the invading army, you're, go you're not willing to be a disciple of Jesus. He says in verse 33, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
I like this quote from a writer named John Stott. This is Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. If he offered men his salvation, he also demanded their submission. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers and the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is a great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is like a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. The message of Jesus was very different. He never, allowed, he never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples, and he has asked every disciple since, to give him their thoughtful and total commitment. Nothing less than this will do. Listen, the Lord Jesus does not want you, and he will not allow you to embrace a kind of discipleship that is designed to make you look respectable, but only so long as you feel comfortable. Such a disciple, Jesus says, has started something they can't finish. They are not at peace with losing what they're about to suffer. Jesus himself says, if that's what you want, you cannot be my disciple. Notice third, following Jesus means readjusting future prospects. Verses 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its savor, its flavor, how, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus brings us the lesson on discipleship. Really, he's, he's bringing it around full circle to something he's taught before, in the Sermon on the Mount, salt and light. This time, the prospect is a little different and, and even a little more threatening because in answering, it, it's answering the natural question that some of the disciples would have had at this point. I'm sure there are people standing around Jesus right here in this text going, well, what if I'm not really committed? But I try to follow anyway. And the answer is, your future prospects are dim indeed. You're going to be like salt that loses its flavor. It loses its ability to be a preservative. It's not good for anything, but to be discarded. And, and as harsh as that sounds, Jesus is saying that's, that's the reality. He doesn't have any use for that kind of disciple. What's the point in keeping around unsalty salt? Now, I'm sure there were people there and, and maybe here who can reflect back on their life and think, well, you remember that season in my life where I was really committed? But if that commitment is something that was in the past, was it really commitment to begin with? 
Because genuine commitment to Jesus, he says he's looking for a kind of loyalty that, that lasts. He's looking for loyalty that lasts because a true disciple is ready for the end when they start. There's, there's a verse we skipped, or there at least a little phrase we skipped. I mean, we, we read it, but I didn't really talk about it. But it's earlier in the text. It's up in verse 27, and it's dealing with that future prospect. Verse 27, whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I know this isn't the first time you've heard that expression of bearing your cross or taking up your cross. It's popular to say whatever difficulty it is that you have in particular in your life. That's just my cross to bear. But your cantankerous spouse or your wayward child or your arthritic shoulder are not your cross to bear. Nor does wearing a cross come anywhere close to what Jesus meant by bear your cross and come after me. You put yourself back in the shoes of the original audience that he's talking to when Jesus says, you take up your cross and follow me. He's talking to people who were occupied by the Roman army. They had seen crucifixion happen frequently as a way of intimidating the population. And they knew when they saw a man walking down the street, carrying the cross beam over his shoulder, he was surely headed to an ultimate destination that he was not coming back from. You want to follow Jesus? Jesus says, you follow me, you are a dead man walking. Your life is forfeit. You're like a man who's walking toward crucifixion, resigns it to the fact that everything you had is gone. Really, when you think about the things in your life, you can reduce it to kind of a very basic short list. Your relationships, your stuff, and you. Right? I don't know if there's anything else than that. The relationships you have, the stuff you have, and then your own self. Jesus demands all of it. Your relationships, well, he says in verses 25 and 26, he has to be more important than those relationships. Your stuff, well, the two parables in verses 28 through 32 says, you've got to be ready to spend it all like a man building a tower or lose it all like a man being invaded by a massive army. What about you? (laughs) Well, you don't even get to keep yourself You have to have a loyalty that lasts. And so Jesus demands in verse 26, your own life also. That man who's carrying his cross has to be resigned that he is on a one-way trip and his family and his stuff and his own life, it's all behind him. If our version of discipleship doesn't involve reprioritizing our relationships and our stuff and our lives. If it doesn't involve spending and losing and surrendering and unqualified, lasting loyalty, then we're doing it wrong. Why would anybody be willing then to be a disciple of Jesus? Why would anyone endure that cost? The same reason that you would pay any other cost. You esteem it to be worth the value. You count the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, figuring him to be supremely worth it. 
knowing that he's the one who counted the real cost. He's the one who paid the ultimate price by dying for you, by burying your sins before the Father's wrath. Jesus paid everything that you'd owe. There's nothing in this text that is suggesting that salvation is something you can earn or buy. We understand that Jesus paid it all, but the Lord has recalled us in this text in this text to calculate how much we value him. Is it more than your relationships? Is it more than your stuff? Is it more than your own life? Because if you don't value him more than all else, the simple stark declaration of Jesus himself to such a person is, he cannot be my disciple. 